Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hey, Trojan fan, Bill O'Brien, how's that grab you? Like, that was some old-school Boston bullcrap that my old man used to hit me with. How's that grab you? Like, I know you don't want to clean all that dog crap in the backyard. Here's the shovel. How's that grab you? And I'd be thinking to myself, yeah, it's great. That's great. Maybe you can bump some of that awesome jazz that you love so much for me while I shovel all that dog crap. Hey, by the way, hear me out on this. Bringing Bob in, Bill O'Brien, is not the worst idea ever if you're USC. It's not the equivalent of shoveling and bagging dog crap every weekend, one of the ways I spent my entire childhood. No, so before you dismiss that as out of hand, you better remember that before he was screwing things up as the Texans GM and trading away guys out of spite, this guy did do a hell of a job rebuilding Penn State post-Paterno. Now, maybe he's not the most exciting or charismatic guy ever. He's not going to remind anybody of Pete Carroll with his speed of sound talking, speed of light abuse of bubble yum. He's not that guy. Because of all the things that happened close behind him. There must have been five first and 20s in this game, at least. And so it's really difficult when you're doing that to yourself. So a very difficult lost it because we really had a lot of that we did ourselves to a great extent. Or even worse. I mean, the thing is, you know that at least this guy can't trade away your best player for a bag of footballs in college. Or even worse, get less than a bag of footballs and do it because the franchise player didn't like, respect, or buy into what you were selling. So, no, maybe Bob might not be built to be a head coach in the NFL, but we have seen this guy's act in the college game. So, no, Trojan fan, bringing Bill O'Brien in is not the worst idea ever. He could just be another one of Nick Saban's famous reclamation projects. Unless USC looks to the NFL for somebody else. Another distinct possibility, according to Adam Schefter. Shefty tweeted this, quote, League sources believe Chiefs OC Eric Bieniemy will emerge as a head coaching candidate for USC. Bieniemy is from Southern California and has told confidants in the past that USC is one of the only college jobs that might interest him. End of quote. You already know this. This is an enormous Eric Bieniemy house. I don't think that I've spoken to Eric Bieniemy literally since he played in the NFL. It's been that long. But this is still an enormous Eric Bieniemy house. And it's insane to me that this guy does not have a head coaching job yet. Of course he should be considered for the USC job. He should be considered or a candidate for every single job. But why don't we be real for a minute? The first person everybody thought of when the USC job opened up was Urban Frank Meyer III. Because you know if this guy was still working in TV, he would be on the first thing smoking to Los Angeles. He would have a doctor's note saying that he was fine to coach. He'd have a handwritten contract with his kids that said they were good with it. And he would be shouting, fight on, in a matter of moments. One problem. One problem. He just started in Jacksonville. And even though that start has been a mess and full of awkward moments and one horrible loss and people talking about his temper and using words like, quote, bizarre and unhinged to describe his behavior, he still has only coached one game there. It was a really bad game, but only one game. So there's no way this guy would bail on the Jags after only one game, right? Or even one season, right? Well, 
The Twitter account at Fake Urban has issued a statement. And that statement is, and I quote, I am not interested in coaching the USC Trojans, end quote. Normally, I would never reference a parody Twitter account, except that Shelly Meyer, Urban's wife, apparently responded to that tweet with the face with rolling eyes emoji. And you know what people are like during college head coaching searches. They all turn into sleuths, investigators. They track planes. They scope out hotel lobbies. They try to crack the code. I guarantee there are already people who saw that and are thinking, now wait a minute, why is Urban Meyer's wife lowering herself to respond to a tweet from a fake Urban Twitter account? Wait a minute. Does that mean that at fake urban is actually at real urban? And is real urban logging into fake urban and saying that he's not interested in coaching USC? Why would he do that? To throw everybody off the scent? And before long, that's going to be spun into something about how Urban is actually telling everybody that he is going to be the next head coach at USC. Because if real Urban is using the fake Urban account to say something that everything is opposite, then up is down, block is white, and day is night. So fake Urban saying that he's not interested in coaching USC might mean that real Urban is real interested in coaching USC. After all, why would Shelly respond to a random parody account, right? And then when somebody asked Shelly, quote, but you haven't really unpacked all the boxes, have you? End quote. Shelly responded, and I quote, ha, <laughs> pretty settled, LOL. Laugh out loud. End of quote. I mean, I know Meyer to USC makes sense on so many levels. Like, aside from Notre Dame and Texas, it's pretty much the only big-time college job that he has not held. And let's face it, the guy would absolutely kill it. He'd absolutely kill it here for a few years. That's a lock. You could start planning a parade route the moment this guy showed up at the introductory presser. But I cannot see it happening. Crazy thing is, though, I bet if you had asked Jags fans a few weeks back if they would freak out if they lost Meyer, they'd say yes, hell yes. And then after the last few weeks of them getting humiliated on Sunday by a tanking Texans team, they'd probably be like, you know what? It's cool. I'm good with that. In fact, I'll help him pack. I'll drive him to the airport. I'll put him and that fam on the first thing burning right out of town. But you're not that lucky, Jags fans. He's not going anywhere. You're stuck with him. Then again, if you were looking to hear that from him, you didn't get that chance yesterday because Herb bailed on the traditional conference call with the media for the opposing team during game week. All right, I mean, further evidence that this cat just does not get it. In previous years, the league had mandated that head coaches speak to the media of the opposing team. And in this case for Herb, that would be the Broncos. You talk to the media of the team you oppose the week thereof. However, Ryan O'Halloran of the Denver Post tweeted that the Jags declined to make Meyer available this week. And that went over pretty terribly. 
longtime Broncos writer Mike Kliss tweeted, quote, this is a disgrace. Toughen up, Urban. This is the NFL. End of quote. Man, I'll tell you what. I'm not sure what the thinking was behind the Jags declining to make Myra available. I know it's optional now. I know that skipping out on a conference call like that, whether it was his decision or somebody else's, is not the end of the world. But at the same time, from a PR standpoint, man, that is such a bad look. Such a bad look. And another example of how this guy just does not get it. How this guy doesn't understand that the bull crap that he ran in college does not work around here is beyond me. That he can't bully the media here the way he could back in college. The NFL does not need to adapt to you, Herb. You need to adapt to it and prove that you belong there. The NFL is going to be just fine with or without you, Herb. The NFL has got nothing to prove to you, Herb. You have everything to prove to it, and you're off to a pretty horrible start, and this is just another example of that. Let me explain the optics to you, Herb. It makes it look like you're ducking something, whether it's ducking questions about USC or ducking questions about how terrible your team looked in the opener against another team that really doesn't even want to win that badly. It makes him look like he can't handle the heat and that he's in over his head. That's how it looks if you're bagging media sessions one week into your NFL career. And do not tell me that it's because he wanted to use that time to game plan for the Broncos. Every other coach can do it. Every other coach wants to game plan for whoever they have that week, and they all make that conference call. So, Herb ducking out of that only adds to the narrative that he does not fit in the NFL. You know, a narrative that's been shaped by decisions like hiring Chris Doyle, sticking up for Doyle, and then having to accept Doyle's resignation under scrutiny. Or how about that time he brought in some old dude in his mid-30s to try playing a position that he had never played before? Or when the Jags were fined by the league right out of the gate? Or Herb reportedly freaking out and belittling his coaches and more? And given how this has all gone over the past few months, weeks, and days, it would make complete sense for this guy to bail on his job, to go from skipping out on a press conference to skipping out on the whole damn thing. I mean, why do the real hard job when you can come right here to L.A. and dominate at something you know really well? Man, that'd be awesome. But when something sounds too good to be true, it generally is, and that's not going to happen. It'd be incredible if it did. It'd be the most amazing thing ever if it did, but it's not happening. But the fact that we're even having this conversation is pretty damn good nonetheless. So then again is the fact that Meyer got suspended three games by Ohio State for his handling of domestic violence allegations against one of his coaches and then came back to teach a class on leadership and character. So what I'm saying is there really is no rhyme or reason when it comes to Herb, all of which is to say that he is not going to be the next head coach at USC. Hey, remember when Roger Lodge came on my TV show back in the day, and he made this prediction about Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer is not the next coach at Notre Dame. I'm shaving my head on this program. If Urban Meyer is the next head coach at USC, I will shave Roger Lodge's head on this program. Nope, you're stuck with him, Jacksonville. Hey, but if SC can't get Eric Bieniemy, they should go after my guy Roger Lodge himself. Mr. Forum would own that gig. 
like he owned that segment back in the day. He should uh, basically renege his Patriot membership. Mike, I mean, I don't know. Come on, go ahead. You Brian. take it easy for a second. Let Mr. Forum handle this question. All right, hey, this is absolutely... <laughs> this. Let Mr. Forum handle this. Mr. Forum wouldn't have let Stanford ragged all the Trojans like that. Mr. Forum would have body bagged them like he does bad tippers. Completely inappropriate. Guys, I was a waiter for 15 years. You see me running around on TV calling out the bad tippers in this town. I would never want to call out. I would never want to call out and embarrass guys like Don Cornelius from Soul Train. I'm not that kind of guy, okay? Don't say anything. But let me tell you something. It was not the right venue to call out Pistol Pete for his tipping etiquette. Completely inappropriate. And by the way, George Thorogood, terrible tipper as well. Man, whatever you say, got that, George Thorogood? Got that, all you bad tippers? Especially you, Thorogood. Because Mr. Forum, that dude is bad to the bone. <laughs> Finally, somebody mustered up enough courage, kind of, to ask Herb about the USC job this morning. Uh, unfortunately for you, some rumors came out yesterday connecting you to the USC job. I just, just want to give you the opportunity to refute it so that you can put it to bed. No chance. And whatever you say, you. Let me drop some stats on you. Did you know two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35? Did you know that more than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness? Did you know that there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss? And did you know that Keeps offers both? Now you do. Keeps offers a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered right to your front door every three months, and you do not even need to leave your home. Plus, low-cost treatments starting at only 10 bucks per month, and Keeps offers generic versions and discreet packaging and proven results. What more could you ask for? Well, how about this? Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of the competition. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results, so you want to move right now. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, just go to keeps.com slash Rome and get your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash Rome and get that first month free. keeps.com slash Rome. Quarterback Braxton Burmeister is my guest. Braxton, good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. I'm great. All right, so you're 2-0. You're number 15, as I mentioned. In both polls, you've already got a huge win over then number 10, North Carolina. So kind of dial me in. How would you describe the the, uh, mood and the vibe around the team and campus as you get ready for West Virginia? Uh, We're excited. Obviously, we have a lot of confidence going in this game, but we know it's going to be a a tough atmosphere, and we know it's going to be a big challenge. So so we're ready to roll. All right, so you got to look ahead. I understand this, but if you had a moment, can you take me back to the win over North Carolina? What was the atmosphere like in the stadium at the start of that game? And then when you scored to go up 7-0 and you hit James Mitchell to make it 14 nothing, what was it like then? It was a big-time atmosphere, um, especially with having COVID and no fans the year before. Coming back to enter Sandman and, and Lane Stadium is, is always special, but but against North Carolina, it was insane, and uh, we had a lot of energy, and we were ready to roll, and um, 
getting up 14-0 early was definitely big, and our fans definitely played a huge part in that win, and it was an electric stadium for sure. Braxton Burmeister is joining us. The defense also came up huge in that game. They sacked Sam House six times. They forced three INTs. What did you make of the way they showed up, and then how much does that fire up you in the offense? They played amazing. Um, we got some great players on defense. One of our edge rushers, Amari Barno, is one of the best edge rushers in the country, and he was uh, harassing Sam all night, and they came up big and gave our offense the ball in short fields and gave us a ton of confidence. Yeah, Sam, I love your background. Not everybody knows your story, but some do. You were born in Virginia. You grew up here in Southern California. You played your high school ball at Loyola Country Day. Your father, Dan, played football in North Carolina, but was not necessarily pushing you to get into football. Instead, you were actually more focused on basketball early on. When did you start to play football, and how did you know that was the thing you wanted to do? Um, I di- actually didn't like football until I was about in eighth grade. Uh, I didn't like the contact or anything like that. And then kind of got bigger and stronger going into eighth grade and got pretty good at it. And, and that's when I kind of decided that I liked football more than basketball. And throughout high school, kind of progressed in football more than basketball. So That makes sense. I get that. You get bigger, you get stronger, and all of a sudden you start to dole out some of that punishment, and you're not taking all the punishment. And then a while back you started to work with Achilles Smith – that's interesting, too. What was that experience like, and what did you learn from your time with him? Uh, Achilles always been a great mentor to me. Um, I grew up around him. Whenever, whenever I decided to play quarterback, I think it was like fourth grade, I was younger, uh, I decided that I was going to work with somebody and, and try to get better at it, and that person was Achilles. And so I kind of grew up around him. He's taught me a ton, and we have, we have a special bond. We talk about life. We talk about football and obviously work on football as well, but... He's really just been a great mentor to me for for everything, not just on the field. Braxton Burmeister, my guest. I like that. That's cool. Now, when you talk about having to go through things and not just things on the field, obviously there's going to be adversity no matter what. Like initially when you were at Oregon, through a series of events, you ended up playing perhaps earlier than you may have expected. You had to jump right in the middle of a season, and then you end up hurting your shoulder, but you played through it. You were able to grind through it. What was that time like, and what did you learn from that time? Uh, that was tough, definitely being a true freshman and, and dealing with a shoulder injury early. The game's already moving really fast for a freshman quarterback, and then when, you, when you're worried about your shoulder, it's not the best feeling in the world. So um, I definitely learned to just think about the next play and move forward every, every game and, and just go out there and, and be prepared. Prepare, preparation during the week is a huge thing for a quarterback and as well. If you can get yourself prepared really well, then you're going to have a good chance. So that's what I learned during that time and, and obviously overcoming injuries and, and things like that as well. All right, so I'm curious, like looking back, when did you start to think about transferring from Oregon? And then at that point, how much was Virginia Tech actually on your radar? Um, when Willie Taggart left Oregon, that's when I kind of started to think about it. I was recruited by him and in uh, college football, sometimes when you're not recruited by the, the staff that arrives, they kind of have you on the back burner. So I didn't really feel like I had a great opportunity to play um, there. So I decided that I was going to transfer. And at first, I didn't really think about Virginia Tech at all. But uh, my dad grew up in Virginia and went to the same high school as Virginia Tech's linebacker coach, Jack Tyler. And so they had uh, mutual contacts, and that relationship kind of sprouted from there. I get it. Braxton Burmeister joining us. All right, so then you make that move. I'm curious, what was it like to make the transition from Oregon into a new program and even into a new locker room and start to build relationships? How did you approach that? 
Um, I think it was actually easier the second time because going to Oregon, I enrolled at Oregon early as an 18-year-old, and you kind of have to learn to build those relationships there. And when I when I came out to Virginia Tech, I had already kind of did it. I had already kind of done it once, and um, so it was kind of easier the second time. And I just kind of got close with the guys. I had to sit out that year, so it gave me a chance to sit back and kind of learn the playbook and, and run the scout team and earn a lot of people's respect. All right. Now, when you talk about learning the playbook, this is interesting, too. Last year was such a weird year in the sense that because of the pandemic, I mean, it just did so many weird things to everybody. Also, you suffered some broken toes last year, but you said that at that time, and in fact, just ma- mention it again, you mastered the playbook during that period. How were you able to take that negative and turn it into a positive? What was your mindset there? Um, it kind of goes back to to the organ injury. It's it's you gotta you gotta just prepare, prepare. and as a quarterback, preparation's huge. And so I kind of took that time and stepped back from the whole I have to play right now to let's let's just learn what we're doing each week. And I knew I wasn't gonna have to play for a few weeks, so um, I kind of just took that opportunity to get in the film room and and watch the other quarterbacks take reps and really learn and listen to our OC talk about our plays and. I wasn't really forced to have to do it so I could make mistakes and learn from them instead of in front of 60,000 people, it'd be at practice. So that helped a lot. We're talking to Braxton Burmeister for a few more moments. I thought you made another great point. I like this point a lot, in fact. You said that when the coaches call a play, quote, I'm flowing instead of thinking all the time. I mean, that sounds like something like a 10-year NFL guy would say. Getting into a flow state is the best, and it's not an easy thing to do, and probably preparation has something to do with it. But how would you describe how it feels when you're flowing instead of merely thinking? Uh, When you're flowing, it normally happens with something that you've repped a lot, so it's like second nature to you. And uh, thinking, obviously, when you put new plays in and you have a motion or you have to check a safety and and you're not really sure how the route's going to look or how the receiver's going to break for the first time, you're kind of thinking the entire time. You're worried about your drop. You're worried about all these different things. But when you get reps at certain plays and you know exactly what's going to go on, you can just kind of flow and play because you're already, you've already seen it and done it before. It's kind of like taking a test. Is that a good analogy? Like if you've done the work and you've prepared, you're like, man, man, let's do this. I'm good. I got this. As opposed to, you know, you stayed up all night, you crammed for it. You know you're not ready and you know it's going to suck. Is that what it feels like? Yes, sir. No doubt. All right, so speaking of confidence, before the season, your head coach, Justin Fuente, said, quote, I feel better about us throwing the ball right now than since I've been here. What's it mean to hear that, and then what's it been like to play for him? Uh, hearing that is awesome. Um, we worked on it all, spring ball, all off season. We have great receivers, and and so hearing that is definitely <clears throat> awesome coming from him. And it's uh, He's a great dude. He's a, he's a great leader, and he pushes us to be great, and he knows our team has talent to – to go one and zero each week, and so he pushes us to do that, and um, it's awesome playing for him. All right, so let me finally ask you: These are pretty heady times, right? You're two and zero. You've got a huge win already. You're number fifteen in both polls. It seems to me like you're taking this all really in stride. Is this something you've consciously worked on, or is it just basically because of what you've been through and who you are? Um, I think it think it's both for sure, and I think our team as well has kind of taken this approach and. We know we go out there and we lose a game and all of that goes away. So uh, we got to prepare each week and, and go 1-0 each week. And once we close each week, you got to move forward to the next one and um, just keep preparing. And we know if as soon as we lose, the same people that were praising us are going to be the same, the ones that are doubting us. So you just got to take it all in stride and, and 
keep moving forward. You get it. He is the quarterback at Virginia Tech, 131.9 rating on the season. Once again, they're 2-0. They are number 15 in both polls and another big one coming up Saturday at West Virginia. Braxton, great to have you on. Thanks so much. Good job. Awesome. Thank you for having me. If you have ever been behind the wheel of a high-performance sports car, you know exactly how much better a car can be. Like, once you do that, you never want to settle for a regular car ever again. You can't go back, right? I feel the exact same way about my X chair. From the moment I first sat down in that X chair, I understood why so many consider it to be the finest office chair in the world. Can your current, can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's all in the LMAX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair ever again. So take Take my advice. Try X-Chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you will never, ever go back. I guarantee that. So go to xchairrome.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, R-O-M-E.com for 100 bucks off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. That's xchairrome.com. Let me start with social. I've got phone lines open. I also want your beefs on the phones. 1-800-636-8686. First beef. Hi, Romy. My beef is when I have free time in the evening and I turn on my preset recording of the best sports talk show in America. Make that the whole world. I see a swim meet. Or worse, a football game? What's next? Regional cornhole? Or axe chucking championships? War of the Jungle. Mike in Lancaster, PA. I mean, Mike, it could be any of those things. Listen, man, as much as I would like to, I don't program the network. And believe it or not, I do have bosses. They wear suits. Sell a good product. I mean, I would prefer that it not preempt my show. But I can't be selfish like that, man. I'm a member of a team. And we have relationships. But I appreciate you. Thanks for saying that. And no matter what, whenever I am on, I'm going to give you everything I got. Wells is in, quote, My beef is that I just opened some old trapper and everybody on the boat is expecting me to share it with them. Hey, Wells, no, they're not. No, they're not. They all know how you went from being Wells in the 360 to Wells in the 720 by not sharing. No one's expecting you to share, Wells. They know your deal. Beef not accepted. And by the way, bro, you're not on a boat. You're not on a boat. You're on a boat. You're not on a boat because if you were, that boat would be taking lots of water right now. Chris... In Fondy tweets, Jim, my beef is with the co-worker that comes back from a lengthy vacation and asks, how was it here when I was gone? Really, dude? How the hell do you think it was? Jimmers. I love this. This is so good. Jimmers. My beef is with my girlfriend complaining that, quote, I can't control my horny level. I can't control my horny level. Just sit back. No, just shut up, sit back, and enjoy. Abigail in San Diego, unwar menopause. Go, Abigail. You tell her, Abigail. 
War Lady clones. Her girlfriend's like, damn, Abby, you can't control your horny level. You know, really? I can't control Why don't my you horny level. Just sit level? back and enjoy it. Ryan and Sackdown's in. JR, my beef is with people who eat sunflower seeds at work. The only thing worse than hearing cracking shells and spitting every three seconds is seeing them use their digits as a toothpick. What up, P and the B? P and the B is short for pimp in the box. What up, P and the B? My beef is with idiots that feel the need to incorporate, to be honest, into every other sentence. So, if you don't say that, should I just assume that you're for S? To be honest, I'm tired of it. Stop it. Brad in G-Rap. You know what? I got a kid who does that. One of my kids, no names mentioned, Jake. Well, if I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, you, you don't need to preface everything by if I'm being honest. If you're saying it, I'm assuming you feel it, and it's true. If I'm being honest... What, like that's going to lessen the blow? If I'm being honest. Hi, Jim. My beef is with the drinkers and smokers on social media who complain about everyone else's health but their own. Hey, losers. You swallow fermented toxins, which puts your liver into no days off status. And don't even get me started on the smokers who bellow noxious gas into our atmosphere while snuffing out their non-biodegradable coffin nails on our sidewalks. Here's some medical advice for you idiots. Shut up, Sarah. Salty as she ever was. I don't know. I was going to say the clubhouse leader was Abigail lecturing her girlfriend, except Sarah's good. You know what? Either way, war lady clones. The two War best Lady ones Clones. are from the women. Add Trader Brent. Romy, my beef is with hell. But more specifically, that special place in hell. What? Hell isn't bad enough? It's hell. It's the worst place in the universe. Fair. Fair. But what I'm saying is, yes, I, I've never been and I've never spoken to anybody who has, but I'm guessing hell is like a stadium. There are good seats and bad seats. Like say you go to a, a football game and you watch a team that's 0-15. Hell. Doesn't matter where you sit, good seats, bad seats. Let's just say that there's also the orchestra pit of hell. You can be in the pit. You don't want to be in the pit. You want to be in the pit for your favorite band, but not in hell. So I think the point you make is fair, but I disagree. Todd, near Lexington. What's my beef? Usually it's with cheddar. And Arby's sauce and horsey sauce on a bun with curly fries and a side of ranch. Sign Rit. Rit's getting fired up. Man's game. Mm. Hey, Rome. Ambi. My beef is with dudes that mark their golf ball with a 50 cent piece. Hey, Tool, no one else thinks that's a baller move. We're just hoping our damn ball does not hit that manhole cover that you dropped on the green. Bro, there's a reason we're using dimes and nickels. Well done, Casey. Well done. I like that. Why not just drag a manhole cover out there? Carry that thing around. Maybe wear it around your neck and then take it off and mark your ball with it. T-Donkey, 2021, quote, I have beef. 
with the bags that show up in the self-checkout aisle of the grocery store with 75 items and no clue how to operate the scanner. Find a lane with a human that can help your sorry ass. I'll allow that. Dear Jim, my beef is with adults who use the word yummy. If you're over the age of eight, you should never use that word. You sound like an idiot. You're welcome. Lee and Hartford. Did Belly not want any of that? Unless you're talking, I know, about Belly Clarkson. I don't know, man. There's some things that are yummy. Nothing. Wow. Alvy, man, you are so quick. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that's yummy. What comes to mind? Hmm. I'll tell you what. The perfect bar that I had this morning, man, that was yummy as hell. You know why? Mm. I ate it 90 minutes later than I normally do, and I had less for dinner last night than I normally have. So that thing was extremely yummy. Jim, my beef is with morning shows on rock stations. You know what's yummy? Old Trapper is yummy as hell, man. Right there. My beef is with morning shows on rock stations, mainly the hosts and their myopic, narcissistic content, laughing at their own jokes and not playing any music. If I want to talk, I would listen to sports talk radio, which is what I do now. Very respectfully, signed Eric on Maui. Maui rules, dude. Big fan of Maui. I feel you. Van Smack, I have a beef with sea turtles. Well, maybe only a select few sea turtles, as all the ones I see are almost as old as Rit. But apparently a few of the younger ones like to eat plastic straws. And because of this, I have to use a paper straw for my venti java chip frappuccino. Every try or ever try to drink something like this through a paper straw, you get about three pools and the damn straw is worthless. I need a 20-pack of paper straws to get through my drink now. Come on, turtles. Smarten up. Thanks, Mark and Parts Unknown. Dude, that is the most random beef ever. That is strong. Good job and a very good effort. And sorry about your paper straw, bro. And Leroy Fleming 11. Hey, Jim. My beef is with Mike Evans not knowing about leather helmets. I mean, to be fair, he may have known. He just didn't think it was funny. First of all, it's Lee Evans, not Mike Evans. But thanks for having my back. I did that whole thing yesterday, but that famous exchange between Lee Evans and I where I cracked a joke and he didn't think it was funny and didn't even bother to respond. And I said, listen, there's this unspoken agreement between a host and a guest. If one of us cracks a joke, no matter how bad the joke is, we just play along so the other one doesn't get hung out and look bad. Except, dude, hung me out and I look bad. And then I was gun-shy and I didn't make another joke for like three months. All right, let's go to the phones. This is a beef segment. Good job. Good job on social media. Extremely well done. Hey, let me ask you something. Does this sound like you? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. 
Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment that you love without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It is called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before so you can watch all your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. What that means is no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the best part, there is no annual contract. It's brilliant. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Let's see what we have. 1-800-636-8686. Let's go to San Antonio. Ed in San Antonio. Ed, what is your beef? JR. Yeah, my beef is the bag who comes out of the store with a pack of cigarettes and he beats him incessantly on the palm of his hand, you know, like it owes him money or something. It's like, dude, man, stop beating those cigarettes like a redheaded stepchild in a Walmart. Just get your lung darts, get your lotto tickets, and get the hell out of the way. My man, nice job, Ed. The reason they do that is they, they pack the cigarettes. Like I've told you this before, I, I smoke cigarettes. I was a cigarette smoker for one year in college, so it's been decades. But I would do that. I, I would do it, I guess, to look cool or because that they actually, when you do that, it bangs the tobacco into it. I, who knows why you would do it? If you're stupid enough to smoke in the first place, you're stupid enough to do something like that and think it helps. Let's see. Let's go to Central PA. Joe. Good to have you, Joe. What's your beef? Jim, my beef's with my team, the Cleveland Browns, America's team. Hey, memo to our punter, Jamie Gillen, a.k.a. the Scottish Hammer. You're allowed to kick the ball, bro. Don't run around with it and give up points to the best team in the league. Don't run around there like a damn little girl looking for a place to hide. Kick the ball. Get rid of it. Do something. Throw it. That's oh, man, my beef, man. I feel you, Joe. I feel you. That hurt. That really hurt. Not only should he kick the damn ball, he should catch the damn ball first. Then that would enable him to kick the damn ball. What you do not want to do is not catch the ball and then run around inside your own 10-yard line against the best quarterback in the NFL and arguably the best team in the NFL. That didn't help, for sure. 1-800-636-8686. Let's go to Norman. Robert in Norman, what is your beef? Hey, Jim, my, my beef was with myself for making the, the year review for 2020, calling your show with the worst idea ever for the Astros cheating scandal. Roll tape, Alvy. Ah! If by roll tape you, you mean like run your ass, Alvy, there you go. Roll tape, Alvy. Don't tell Alvy what to do. He doesn't like that. He barely likes it when I do it. I guarantee he's not going to like it when you do it, and especially when you is you, Robert in Norman. Nice try with that. I thought he was going to own it. My beef's with me. All right, here's some self-awareness. Nah. Nah. 1-800-636-8686. Let's move through it. I know she's got beef. She's got beef all the time. That's why she's good at this segment. Let's go to Omaha, Nebraska. Kathleen, what is your beef, Kathleen? I cannot stand Greta Van Fleet. They are nothing but a Led Zeppelin ripoff. 
the front men sound like someone is squeezing the daylights out of his junk. He'll, he will never be as vocally talented as Johannes Eckerstrom. When I hear Johannes sing, he always makes me feel like melted chocolate, and he is my end-all, be-all baby boy. Rock her, Kathleen. Rock him. War Lady Clone. Fire. This is all fire. God, this is a good segment. Kathleen has gone from this kind of like oddity, this this circus sideshow off to the side. No offense, Kathleen. But then again, you still... Do you even know my name, Kathleen? She, I love that she never, ever addresses me directly. That was so good. That was an amazing beef. That he just turns her into melted chocolate. That's a beef. Good job, Kathleen. She makes it better. Let's keep going. I'm just going to string this thing out as far as I possibly can. 1-800-636-8686. You need to update that call there, Chalk. I've already taken that one. Line five, we've already done that one. Let's see here. I'm looking for the best caller. Let's go to L.A. Matt, what's your beef, brah? Hey, man, my beef is with that fraudulent little brother franchise and city known as San Diego. I thought this was the year that they were going to pose a threat to the Dodgers. Now it's just SoCal, no cal. What happened, Padres? You guys were telling us all year long how this was your year. War Trapper, R.I.P. Trapper. Outro. Roll tape, Alvy. Good job, Matt. <laughs> Roll tape, Alvy. <laughs> well done, Matt. He's like, yo, Padres, what's up? What's up? This was the year. Hey, I'm as guilty as anybody. I thought this was their year. I thought that this was their year. Slam Diego! 1-800-636-8686. Hey, listen, yo, geniuses on the other side. I don't need the recommendation, even though you're screening them. I can just take them, but it would help. But if not, that's all right. Yo, man, I don't want any age discrimination situations. But, dude, because you're old, you're not keeping up. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. All right, so let's go to San Francisco. Phil is in Northern California. It's good to have you, Phil. What's your beef? Yo, my beef is with hair of the dog. Every time. It's great for a hangover, but I just end up drunk all day the next day. That's it. I'm out. My man. All right. See, that? that's different. Is there an actual science behind that hair of the dog? Uh, that's, that's one play that I've never really gone with. Because if I've got it bad enough the day after the fact that I need the hair of the dog, generally I don't want it. To which somebody would say, right, but it works, so you just do it. But I don't. Generally, I'll hit it with some grease instead of more booze, and that doesn't help. All right, that guy just said, man, my beast with hair of the dog. I'd do that, and I'd just end up drunk the whole next day, too. <laughs> All right, are we going to end it there, or is there anybody else to walk it off with? That's that. That was a great segment. That was a fire segment. Look at that, dude. That was like almost 18 minutes of beef. Well done. And as a reminder, clones, you don't need, I'm glad you do, but you don't need to wait for that segment to beef. You can bring any other beef to any other segment any other day of the week. 
Let me drop some stats on you. Did you know two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35? Did you know that more than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness? Did you know that there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss? And did you know that Keeps offers both? Now you do. Keeps offers a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered right to your front door every three months, and you do not even need to leave your home. Plus, low-cost treatments starting at only 10 bucks per month, and Keeps offers generic versions and discreet packaging and proven results. What more could you ask for? Well, how about this? Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of the competition. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results, so you want to move right now. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, just go to keeps.com slash Rome and get your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash Rome and get that first month free. keeps.com slash Rome. Quarterback Braxton Burmeister is my guest. Braxton, good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. I'm great. All right, so you're 2-0. You're number 15, as I mentioned. In both polls, you've already got a huge win over then number 10, North Carolina. So kind of dial me in. How would you describe the the, uh, mood and the vibe around the team and campus as you get ready for West Virginia? Uh, We're excited. Obviously, we have a lot of confidence going in this game, but we know it's going to be a a tough atmosphere, and we know it's going to be a big challenge. So so we're ready to roll. All right, so you got to look ahead. I understand this, but if you had a moment, can you take me back to the win over North Carolina? What was the atmosphere like in the stadium at the start of that game? And then when you scored to go up 7-0 and you hit James Mitchell to make it 14 nothing, what was it like then? It was a big-time atmosphere, um, especially with having COVID and no fans the year before. Coming back to enter Sandman and, and Lane Stadium is is always special, but but against North Carolina, it was insane, and uh, we had a lot of energy, and we were ready to roll, and um, getting up 14-0 early was definitely big, and our fans definitely played a huge part in that win, and it was an electric stadium for sure. Braxton Burmeister is joining us. The defense also came up huge in that game. They sacked Sam House six times. They forced three INTs. What did you make of the way they showed up, and then how much does that fire up you in the offense? They played amazing. Um, we got some great players on defense. One of our edge rushers, Amari Barno, is one of the best edge rushers in the country, and he was uh, harassing Sam all night, and they came up big and gave our offense the ball in short fields and gave us a ton of confidence. Now, Sam, I love your background. Not everybody knows your story, but some do. You were born in Virginia. You grew up here in Southern California. You played your high school ball at Loyola Country Day. Your father, Dan, played football in North Carolina, but was not necessarily pushing you to get into football. Instead, you were actually more focused on basketball early on. When did you start to play football, and how did you know that was the thing you wanted to do? Um, I actually didn't like football until I was about in eighth grade. Uh, I didn't like the contact or anything like that, and then kind of got bigger and stronger going into eighth grade and got pretty good at it, and and that's when I kind of decided that I liked football more than basketball and throughout high school kind of progressed in football more than basketball, so... That makes sense. I get that. You get bigger, you get stronger, and all of a sudden you start to dole out some of that punishment, and you're not taking all the punishment. And then a while back, you started to work with Achilles Smith. That's interesting, too. What was that experience like, and what did you learn from your time with him? Uh, Achilles always been a great mentor to me. Um, I grew up around him. 
whenever whenever I decided to play quarterback, I think it was like fourth grade. I was younger. Uh, I decided that I was going to work with somebody and and try to get better at it. And that person was Akili, and so I kind of grew up around him. He's taught me a ton, and we have we have a special bond. We talk about life, we talk about football, and obviously work on football as well. But he's really just been a great mentor to me for for everything, not just on the field. Braxton Burmeister, my guest. I like that. That's cool. Now, when you talk about having to go through things and not just things on the field, obviously there's going to be adversity no matter what. Like initially when you were at Oregon, through a series of events, you ended up playing perhaps earlier than you may have expected. You had to jump right in the middle of a season, and then you end up hurting your shoulder, but you played through it. You were able to grind through it. What was that time like, and what did you learn from that time? Uh, that was tough, definitely being a true freshman and, and dealing with a shoulder injury early. The game's already moving really fast for a freshman quarterback, and then when, you, when you're worried about your shoulder, it's not the best feeling in the world. So um, I definitely learned to just think about the next play and move forward every, every game and, and just go out there and, and be prepared. Prepare, preparation during the week is a huge thing for a quarterback and as well. If you can get yourself prepared really well, then you're going to have a good chance. So that's what I learned during that time and, and obviously overcoming injuries and, and things like that as well. All right, so I'm curious, like looking back, when did you start to think about transferring from Oregon? And then at that point, how much was Virginia Tech actually on your radar? Um, when Willie Taggart left Oregon, that's when I kind of started to think about it. I was recruited by him and in uh, college football, sometimes when you're not recruited by the, the staff that arrives, they kind of have you on the back burner. So I didn't really feel like I had a great opportunity to play um, there. So I decided that I was going to transfer. And at first, I didn't really think about Virginia Tech at all. But uh, my dad grew up in Virginia and went to the same high school as Virginia Tech's linebacker coach, Jack Tyler. And so they had uh, mutual contacts, and that relationship kind of sprouted from there. I get it. Braxton Burmeister joining us. All right, so then you make that move. I'm curious, what was it like to make the transition from Oregon into a new program and even into a new locker room and start to build relationships? How did you approach that? Um, I think it was actually easier the second time because going to Oregon, I enrolled at Oregon early as an 18-year-old, and you kind of have to learn to build those relationships there. And when I when I came out to Virginia Tech, I had already kind of did it. I had already kind of done it once. And um, so it was kind of easier the second time. And I just kind of got close with the guys. I had to sit out that year, so it gave me a chance to sit back and kind of learn the playbook and, and run the scout team and earn a lot of people's respect. All right. Now, when you talk about learning the playbook, this is interesting, too. Last year was such a weird year in the sense that because of the pandemic, I mean, it just did so many weird things to everybody. Also, you suffered some broken toes last year, but you said that at that time, and in fact, just ma- mention it again, you mastered the playbook during that period. How were you able to take that negative and turn it into a positive? What was your mindset there? Um, it kind of goes back to to the organ injury. It's it's you gotta you gotta just prepare, prepare and as a quarterback, preparation's huge. And so I kind of took that time and stepped back from the whole I have to play right now to let's let's just learn what we're doing each week. And I knew I wasn't gonna have to play for a few weeks, so um, I kind of just took that opportunity to get in the film room and and watch the other quarterbacks take reps and really learn and listen to our OC talk about our plays and. I wasn't really forced to have to do it so I could make mistakes and learn from them instead of in front of 60,000 people, it'd be at practice. So that helped a lot. We're talking to Braxton Burmeister for a few more moments. I thought you made another great point. I like this point a lot, in fact. You said that when the coaches call a play, quote, I'm flowing 
instead of thinking all the time. I mean, that sounds like something like a 10-year NFL guy would say, getting into a flow state is the best, and it's not an easy thing to do, and probably preparation has something to do with it, but how would you describe how it feels when you're flowing instead of merely thinking? Uh, When you're flowing, it normally happens with something that you've repped a lot, so it's like second nature to you. And uh, thinking, obviously, when you put new plays in and you have a motion or you have to check a safety and and you're not really sure how the route's going to look or how the receiver's going to break for the first time, you're kind of thinking the entire time. You're worried about your drop. You're worried about all these different things. But when you get reps at certain plays and you know exactly what's going to go on, you can just kind of flow and play because you're already, you've already seen it and done it before. It's kind of like taking a test. Is that a good analogy? Like if you've done the work and you've prepared, you're like, man, man, let's do this. I'm good. I got this. As opposed to, you know, you stayed up all night, you crammed for it. You know you're not ready, and you know it's going to suck. Is that what it feels like? Yes, sir. No doubt. All right. So speaking of confidence, before the season, your head coach, Justin Fuente, said, quote, I feel better about us throwing the ball right now than since I've been here. What's it mean to hear that? And then what's it been like to play for him? Uh, hearing that is awesome. Um, we worked on it all, spring ball, all off season. We have great receivers. And and so hearing that is definitely <clears throat> awesome coming from him. And it's uh, he's a great dude. He's a he's a great leader, and he pushes us to be great. And he knows our team has talent to to go one and zero each week, and so he pushes us to do that. And um, it's awesome playing for him. All right, so let me finally ask you: These are pretty heady times, right? You're two and zero. You've got a huge win already. You're number fifteen in both polls. It seems to me like you're taking this all really in stride. Is this something you've consciously worked on, or is it just basically because of what you've been through and who you are? Um, I think it think it's both for sure, and I think our team as well has kind of taken this approach, and we know we go out there and we lose a game, and all of that goes away. So uh, we got to prepare each week and and go one and zero each week, and once we close each week, you got to move forward to the next one, and um, just keep preparing. And we know if as soon as we lose, the same people that were praising us are going to be the same the ones that are doubting us. So you just got to take it all in stride and and keep moving forward you get it he is the quarterback at virginia tech 131.9 rating on the season once again they're 2-0 they are number 15 in both polls and another big one coming up saturday at west virginia braxton great to have you on thanks so much good job awesome thank you for having me he is ken burns ken it is a pleasure to have you on how are you ken I'm doing well, Jim. Great to hear your voice again. You too, Ken. Great to talk to you. So let's just jump right into this. You worked on this project with your daughter, Sarah, and her husband. It's a film, Ken, that took seven years to make, clearly a labor of love. Why was this something that you wanted to devote so much time and energy to? Well, you know, I have to be honest, as as you already know, Jim, that there are lots of documentaries about Muhammad Ali, and a few of them are among the greatest documentaries ever made. Most of those, and not taking anything away from them, they're all great works, none of those really do the kind of complete story that we wanted to tell. They're one particular fight or a couple of fights or a series of a couple of years. We wanted to begin with birth and boyhood in segregated Jim Crow, Louisville, Kentucky, and death by Parkinson's uh, five years ago, not that long ago. And the whole arc of his career, not just the magnificent career as a boxer, which we detail uh, throughout the series, throughout the four episodes, and and eight hours, you know, which themselves are phenomenal, kind of like the collected works of William Shakespeare, but also his personal life, the the his his journey in faith, 
that took him so many different places. Uh, he intersects with all of the major themes of the last half of the 20th century, like the role of sports in society, the role of black athletes, the definition of black masculinity and black manhood, the civil rights movement, race, politics, war, faith, religion, sex, all of these things are things that we're dealing with today. And Muhammad Ali is, you know, obviously one of the greatest figures in American history, obviously the greatest athlete of the 20th century, I argue, of all time. And his story just becomes one of freedom and courage and, and love. You know, he dies the most beloved man on this planet. And there was a time when many people considered him divisive, when in fact it may have been us divisive in relationship to him and his desire to just be who he wanted to be. Talking to Ken Burns, his latest film, Muhammad Ali, is a four-part doc. It premieres Sunday on PBS. So, Ken, let me follow you right there. Like, for instance, how would you describe the change in the country's relationship with Ali? Because you're right. I mean, he was very divisive in that one sense. Like, I think a lot of people think about Muhammad Ali, the former fighter, and they think about the man who lit the Olympic flame in Atlanta, and he was such a beloved figure at that point, but that's not the way it always was. So what changed? For instance, did he change or did everybody else change? I, I'm, I'm thinking it's the latter. I, I, I'm, you know, here's a guy that, is, to use the baseball metaphor, he comes up, he's not behaving the way people think athletes should behave, right? He's bragging, I'm pretty, I'm beautiful, black is beautiful, all of these things. He's poetry, predicting the round in which his opponents are going to fall. And so he's not behaving the way an athlete is supposed to behave, and particularly a black athlete is supposed to behave. Strike one. Then after he defeats Liston in 64 and becomes the heavyweight champion of the world, it's learned that he's now a member of the Nation of Islam, a separatist religious sect. doesn't bear much relationship to Islam proper, but, you know, it's enough. It's already been labeled a hate group, and it's scary to a lot of people. And he takes on a new name. He's no longer Cassius Clay's Muhammad Ali, strike two. And then he refuses induction on religious grounds, on faith grounds, into the United States Army, but the U.S. doesn't see a black man's choice in that way in the mid-1960s. They see it as a kind of political middle finger at the U.S. and, and, and not the religious, um, deeply held religious belief that he had that strike three. And so I would argue that Ali is being himself, and we're having trouble permitting a black man to be free in America. So the, the story of freedom and courage and love is that he's willing to sacrifice and does the height of his professional life, three and a half years of exile, unable to box after leaving behind several masterpieces of boxing. Zora Foley, Big Cat Williams, just unbelievable fights uh, that he's just at the top of his game and he loses. He has to dip into his, this, uh, he doesn't have a Nike contract, you know, he has to dip into his wife's uh, college savings uh, just to survive. And, and then he makes his way back. And so by the time he fights Frazier, which is his third, I think his third fight out from uh, when he was uh, banned, he loses. And in the last round, he knows he's behind on points. So he's trying to score a knockout. He exposes himself. He gets knocked down and he gets right back up. Decision goes to Frazier. He's very soft-spoken after ragging just uh, mercifully and, and inexcusably using the language of a white racist against Frazier. He's soft-spoken and talks about failure. And at that point, as Robert Lipsight, the sports writer, says in our film, you know, Frazier won the fight, but Ali won America. They were beginning to realize by 1971 that he'd been right about the Vietnam War and that they begin to realize that he'd also, over the course of 
his then reclaiming the championship against uh, George Foreman in 1974 in Kinshasa Zaire, losing it again and winning it again, that he had exhibited an unbelievable second set of courage and that he had, had stood on his own principles. So by the time we get to the torch, and of course he's now imprisoned by Parkinson's disease and this beautiful, voluble human being is no longer able to speak, I think our hearts go out. That's us changing. Muhammad Ali is still the same, and he becomes, you know, this ambassador of peace and love throughout the world that is, you know, his daughter Rashida in our film in our last episode pinches her fingers together and says, boxing was only this much, like a little much, a little bit. And that the larger message of love was what he was about. And you can see it in the early pictures of him as a kid. We discovered some early footage, some early uh, boxing stuff that's just, you know, I'm so excited to share it with everybody. It's an amazing conversation you and I are having, and we've got a few more minutes, so I'm trying to pick my spots. And, you know, he obviously was so much more about than just boxing, although he may have been the best to ever do it. He had this great sense of purpose, which you lay out also in the film. I do want to ask you this, though, Ken. You met him once back in the 90s, and the description of it really is remarkable. For those who do not know, where did you meet him, and what was that experience like? Jim, I, I still to this day kind of scratch my head trying to figure out what actually took place. Um, I went into a diner after the breakfast rush and before the lunch crowd to get a cup of tea. It was winter time. I was raising money for the PBS films that we do, and I needed a cup of tea. I turn around after I order, and he's just slipped into a booth. I don't even remember whether he's with anybody else. And what then proceeds to happen is across 25, 30 feet, I look at him, our eyes lock, and we don't break. It's, it's very unusual for men to look that deeply into each other for that long, but it wasn't awkward. And I just said, you're Muhammad Ali, without, not out loud, to myself. And I heard in my head, yes, I am. And I said, I'm not going to bother you. And he said, you're not bothering me. And I said, I love you. And he said, I love you, too. And I then got the tea and sort of walked out to go and just was walking past. And we never broke the thing. And it was, I've never had a situation like that before in my life. Never had one afterwards. It was, you know, it was deep, you know, and it was him. It all has to do with this kind of reservoir of love that he had. You know, you know the great shot where the Beatles show up at the Fifth Street Gym in Miami when he's training for sure. uh, Sonny List in the first fight. And there's that fake publicity stunt. He's punching, and they're all going down like dominoes. And I was thinking that these five guys all understood the way the universe actually works, you know, and best described by Paul McCartney, I guess, maybe John Lennon, too, in All You Need Is Love. But McCartney said, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. So I think Muhammad Ali made us change. I think the divisiveness was our divisiveness. Nobody, he never sent anybody a decapitated black dog in anticipation of a fight in Atlanta, but people sent it to him. Nobody called him this or refused to call him by his name. Lots of people changed their name. Marilyn Monroe changed, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know. Ken Burns joining us. That is quite a story that you tell. So, Ken, let me finally ask you this. Like, there's this notion that history does not repeat itself, but rather it rhymes Do you see rhyming in Ali's story and in where we are now as a country? 
Very much so. And that's attributed, supposedly, Mark Twain said that. And history doesn't repeat itself. Nothing's ever happened exactly the same. But human nature doesn't change. And so we're confronted with many of the same questions that we've had all along uh, about race, about religion, about faith, about greatness, about Black Lives Matter. All of this stuff is involved in the story of, of Muhammad Ali, but is very much present today. And so there's a point in the film where he's talking back and you see him he seems to even know where we're headed. He seems to have heard the name George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, who was from Louisville, Kentucky, like him. He, all the athletes that we talk about, we've been doing a series with the undefeated and PBS and Malcolm Jenkins, a young um, uh, female boxer, uh, Janet Evans, who handed the torch unexpectedly to Ali. Um, it was a big secret. Uh, they all speak about standing on the shoulders. It's his desire for freedom. It's his desire. Uh, it's his exhibition of courage, and it's his sort of message of love that they want to carry into their community. So I, I think although he's been gone for a while and uh, the height of his career is really 50 years ago, he's with us and he's influencing us. It's inspirational, and it's, and a, it's a complicated story. This film does not shy away from his flaws, you know, the way he treated Frazier, the racist language he used against another black man, the infidelity, the, the abandonment of Malcolm X, who was a friend and a mentor. But in the end, he saw all of those things, too, and tried to atone for them. So it's to me, one of the great American stories. What an amazing conversation this has been. He is a filmmaker, he is a documentarian, and his latest film, Muhammad Ali, is a four-part documentary. It does premiere Sunday on PBS. Ken, great, great conversation. Congratulations on this effort and this project. And so good to have you on the show, Ken. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you. And it's also available for streaming, so you can look at it at your leisure. Good night now!